Hi, Lasia. How are you doing? How was your January? Hi, Dan. It's good to be here. Yeah, my January was good. Felt a bit less exciting than the past few months. I mean, we only had one prime minister throughout the whole thing. But overall, it's gone quite quickly, I think. How's yours been? Yeah, good, fine. I suppose going quickly is maybe one of the better things you can say for January, isn't it? I don't know how controversial that is. It's certainly not generally thought of as one of the best months of the year, is it? But I don't know, made it through the cold snap okay, I suppose. Exactly. We've made it. So I should say welcome to the co-hosting seat here. Yeah, thank you for having me. This is my first time co-hosting one of these podcast episodes. Although I've been on as a guest, this is quite different. So I'm really excited to be able to be part of this. Yeah, exactly. So listeners might remember one or two episodes, maybe six months, a year ago, last year has been a guest. But last year, as well as Nikki, who you would have heard from last week or two weeks ago, uh, helping me out while Mary's away. So last year, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself? What does it you do at LCP? What's the core of your role? Sure. I mean, my official job title is I'm an investment consultant, but that probably doesn't actually tell you that much. I'm interested in helping my clients, which are mainly trustees of pension schemes, you know, manage their investments. And I particularly like to focus on responsible investments. So sort of how environmental, social governance issues affect them. And I'm also pretty heavily involved with the diversity, equity and inclusion work that we do here at LCP. And you've given quite a couple of quite high-profile conference-type speeches on that, haven't you? Of course, you spoke at our conference. That was just before Christmas, wasn't it? And then the other one that people might remember is the Lord Adventure debate, which was, what, middle of last year, I suppose, wasn't it? On that, yeah, on I mean, thing. I spoke on a topic that some people consider to be a little controversial at that, which is the idea about diversity quotas. And then at our LCP conference, I actually spoke alongside our guest for today, which is Stuart. And last year, why don't you tell us something we should know about you that we wouldn't find on your CV? Let's see. Something you know about me is that I'm a really good cook. And I think if I wasn't an investment consultant in another life, I would have my own restaurant and be a chef. Oh, brilliant. Okay, go on then. So what would be your go-to dish? Oh, that's a difficult question. It depends on the mood. So I only cook plant-based food. And I think you can do so much yummy stuff with that. And probably cooking Indian food is my speciality. Yeah, some good old aloo parathas or something. Can't go wrong. Wow. Awesome. Cool. Well, I look forward to that sometime, maybe. Anything in particular looking forward to getting out of these sessions on the podcast over the next few months? Yeah. I mean, I think the main thing is just meeting really interesting people. And I always love kind of approaching the topics around investing and finance from a different perspective and hearing different viewpoints and and using that to inform my own viewpoints. I'm really excited to just meet a huge range of different people. Yeah, I can certainly understand that. That's been a big part of it for me as well. So yeah, hopefully we can do that. Right. So should we talk about this episode a little bit? I was really looking forward to talking to Stuart, actually followed him for quite a long time and delighted that he's now a colleague. I guess he's one of the preeminent sort of specialists in this area of health data and analytics. Yeah, no, me too. I mean, I'm really excited. And internally, he just seems like a great guy, he shares a lot of good maths jokes. But of course, he also does a really important and quite prolific role in his actual kind of day job. But I guess it might seem a bit sort of unrelated to the whole investment topic that we're talking about health and topics that perhaps don't obviously seem related to investment. But I actually kind of think they are. I mean, what are your thoughts, Dan? Yeah, well, I I guess it feels like it's become one of the central economic slash political areas of our time, doesn't it? I mean, there have been plenty of articles in the press recently asking this question of should we actually view health as an investment rather than a cost, which is often how it's sort of framed, isn't it? And a lot of the data is actually showing the impact, I think, that bad health can have on, on an economy, which is kind of really helping folks reframe it as an actual investment in growth of the economy. Very hard to 
pin down exactly how that works. I think you can't, it's not something you can calculate two decimal places or whatever, but, but some of the data is starting to shed light on that as a fundamental driver, I think. Really interesting. Yeah, it's definitely one of those huge picture topics, isn't it, that it's hard to get your head around. But actually, the work that Stuart does and going through that data and presenting findings is a really helpful start. Yeah. Anything that jumps out particularly to you from the conversation? Yeah, I mean, there were a few things. For me, I guess one of the things that stood out the most, having known some actuaries for a while, although not being myself, is is the fact that some actuarial work has actually gone quite mainstream now and people might even hear the word actuary and not just think somebody's mispronounced the word actor because now the kind of work that Stuart's doing is actually making it to the main headlines and and people are really understanding the importance of good data and data being presented clearly. Yeah, super mainstream, right? I mean, as Stuart was saying, that the prime minister was actually pushing back on some of the numbers that have been coming out. So yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? Great. Okay, then. Well, should we do this? Should we get to the episode? Definitely. Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. Hi, everyone. Today we are talking data and particularly what data can tell us about health and longevity. And joining us today, delighted to say we've got someone who I've personally followed for quite a while, but now delighted to call a colleague. And that's Stuart McDonald, MBE, head of LCP's Longevity and Demographic Insights team. Stuart, welcome. Thank you, Dan. Really pleased to be here. And thanks for having me. Stuart, it's great to have you here at LCP. It'd be awesome if you could tell us a bit more about your role here. Yeah, happy to last year. So I joined in October and as Dan said, I'm head of longevity and demographic insights. So what does that mean in practice? Essentially, LCP's got two successful businesses that don't have a huge intersectional overlap at the moment. So pensions consultancy business, which is advising pension schemes on life expectancy, amongst other things, of course, and then a health analytics business, which is stacked full of clinicians and epidemiologists and health economists and data scientists who are advising pharma companies and others on different aspects of the health ecosystem. But what we haven't historically been doing is to a large extent leveraging all of that health expertise in the actuarial advice that we're giving on life expectancy. And with the discontinuity that we've been experiencing recently as a result of the pandemic, the inability to do what actuaries have traditionally done, which is kind of analyze past data and and use that to project, it feels like now's the right time to leverage that. So my role essentially sit between those two worlds. I speak enough of both languages, I think, to help those two different types of professional work more closely together. So really to further those relationships and, and hopefully be in a position to provide better advice to different groups of clients by leveraging that combined skill set. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it's really great to see that intersection of sort of actuarial work and health work. I mean, you're pretty well known as an actuary. I'm going to make a bold claim that you might be the most famous actuary in the UK. Your Twitter handle is, is actuary by day. I'm curious to know, is that something you always wanted to be? Did you always want to be an actuary? What made you decide to become one? So I will confess, and it does feel a bit like a confession, because I think it maybe gives you a bit too much insight into how lacking in focus I was at university. I will confess that I had never heard the word actuary until I was in my mid-20s. So I'd been out of uni a few years, and this role came up to actually support actuaries who were looking for lots of numerate graduates to support the pension review. And that was the first time I looked up what an actuary was. And I will admit to being a little embarrassed when I discovered it was essentially the most common destination for someone that had done maths and stats at uni. I probably should have spent less time hanging out with the art students and a bit more time with my course mates. I'm sure it served you well to have had all that time with the art students. Stuart, before we get into the real sort of meat of the episode, and you know, there's, there's some pretty heavy themes in there, maybe just to get things started on a slightly more lighthearted note, what's one thing we should know about you that we won't find on your CV? I'd like to hope I could have given a more interesting answer to this a few years ago, but my time is very much taken up at the moment with my children when I'm not working. So I'm a dad. My children are eight and six at the moment and understandably make considerable demands on my time at weekends. And what else would I throw in? Recently got a dog last Christmas and he's dragging us out and bringing a lot of energy and fun into the house. So on the kids' front, are we into, what are we into, Paw Patrol, Lego, scooters, all of the above? We're definitely past the Paw Patrol phase now. Lots of Minecraft and those sorts of things for my son. My daughter is, I was going to say in the princess phase, but it seems to have been a very long phase. So yeah, they're both very different, but lovely kids. None of them are hitting up the mortality tables yet then? Not quite yet, but they have enjoyed and very quickly become accustomed to daddy popping up on the news and on the radio and so on in in the last couple of years. I got quite a lot of excitement the first time, but yeah, that has passed. I mean, you seem to have had a really busy couple of months in particular. You've been on Newsnight, you received your MBE and met the king. How's that all been? And what is the background to all of these achievements? Yeah, 2022 was a a really big year for me. Mortality has been very much in the front pages, particularly in, in the sort of second half of the year. It's obviously an unfortunate thing, if you like, to be only in demand for something which is unfortunately quite a a morbid and serious subject, but pleased to do my bit to kind of shine light on that because there are quite a lot of technicalities in how you measure this. The mortality impacts are not sort of straightforward to measure and understand. So it's been great actually to be able to bring the actuarial profession a little bit out of the shadows and get into explaining some of those points in ways that people can understand. And yeah, it's been a real personal highlight for me to have received some of the recognition that's come my way. I would stress that I I feel that perhaps an unfair share of the recognition has fallen on me as an individual for what were largely team efforts. I've, I've had really, really great support from a number of people, of colleagues, volunteers within the actuarial profession and beyond that were contributing to things like the COVID-19 Actuaries Response Group and to some of the other volunteer work that we were doing during the peak of the pandemic. But yeah, to have the opportunity in December to attend Windsor Castle, to receive the MBE from the King was a real personal highlight for me and obviously something I'll never forget. Did you get the impression he knew what an actuary was? 
We talked about statistics predominantly. You know, we didn't go into too much detail about the profession specifically, but he was kind in his comments. I think it was something along the lines of, it's a good thing we had geniuses like you kicking around the place. So, I mean, I'll take that, being called a genius take, uh, by the yeah, king, goodness, you know. Man. I think I might add that to my email footer. <laughs> Yeah, and your LinkedIn profile, that's for sure, yeah. Cool, okay, I want to take a little step back, I guess. Fill listeners in on some of the background to your work, sort of specifically what it is you've looked at and why. I mean, the thing that I always see you tweeting about, and maybe that's just recently, is you passing comments on excess deaths numbers. And from what I understand, that that's not sort of your data, that's your interpretation of data that's being produced by NHS and other bodies. Is that sort of right and fair representation? Yeah. So one of the things that I wanted to do at the start of the pandemic was try and shift the conversation, at least within the sort of more informed parts of the media, away from counting COVID deaths, which particularly very early on in the pandemic were significantly underestimated and in parts of the world obviously still are. But even in the UK early on, we had a very, very significant underestimate. And it was clear to me and and to other actuaries working in the mortality sphere that the right way to measure the pandemic's impacts and to do so over time would be this measure of, of excess deaths. So there's different ways you can compute this. The ONS put out a simple sort of first approximation on a Tuesday morning, just comparing how counts compare to a sort of recent historic average. That's okay, but it doesn't allow for the fact that our population is growing. And more importantly, our population is aging. So even if death rates at at a given age were remaining completely consistent, you would expect the number of deaths to increase every year. So by not allowing for that, you're sort of essentially overestimating the excess. So the continuous mortality investigation, which is a part of the actuarial profession that's been around for about 100 years, doing lots of detailed mortality investigations for actuaries, kind of pivoted very early on in the pandemic to producing weekly updates. Ordinarily, the reports that they were doing were quarterly. So I I am part of the CMI. I'm on the executive committee and, and will be taking over as deputy chair in a couple of weeks. But I've been essentially sharing their work, putting that out into the public domain to help people have a better understanding of excess deaths, because excess deaths have had a complicated relationship with the number of deaths directly from the pandemic. At times, it's been a much bigger number, particularly early on. And as we've progressed, things have had quite a different trajectory. And indeed, now, many of the excess deaths that we're seeing are the result of the what we call the indirect impacts of the pandemic. So they're not arising directly from COVID, but from knock-on consequences further down the track of both the, the virus and the ways we had to respond to it. And do you think that was sort of largely successful in that you know, informs journalists and the media picked up on that? Do you think the population at large has got that message that excess deaths is the right way to look at these things or, or does it work to do that? It's difficult to judge, I think, what the person on the street thinks. Social media and, and other platforms where we get feedback to the things that we're saying aren't representative. But I certainly think that it's much more there in media discourse. I mean, looking over the last couple of weeks, there's been much, much more focus on excess deaths when the media have been trying to understand the impacts of the the demand pressures that the health system's experiencing at the moment, those big long delays in A&E, it's excess deaths that they're turning to as being the way to measure and understand that. So, yeah, I think we've had a degree of success in, in getting that message across. 
So it sounds like helping the public to understand the difference between total deaths and excess deaths has been one of the important things that the COVID-19 Actuaries Response Group has done. But can you tell us a bit more about that group and, and how it formed and sort of what your plan was as a group together? Yes. Yeah, so it was very early on in the pandemic, actually. We started having conversations in late February, early March, and came to a, a view that it would be helpful to try to add our expertise into the mix. I don't think we were entirely clear on how we'd focus, how much analysis we would do, what sort of things that we would get involved with. So we we did some peer review, was our first piece of work on, and it was, it was quite high level, but on the Imperial College model to just kind of get our own heads around that and what it was saying and whether the numbers that were coming out of it kind of passed the sniff test. So we, we did some of that work, but then we started seeing a lot of misinformation getting out there, some of which perhaps deliberately generated. But I think early on, a lot of what we'd consider to be misinformation or you know incorrect information, as opposed to sort of disinformation, where people are seeking to mislead, a lot of it was about journalistic misunderstandings and about journalists not really knowing who to speak to about different topics. At the start of the pandemic, I don't think it would be unfair to say the media was sort of flailing around looking for COVID experts, and there weren't any. There were experts at assessing mortality, there were virologists out there, and, and there were different people with different groups of expertise. The media might talk to the wrong people, experts might go outside of their area of expertise, things would get misinterpreted. So we did find a real role early on in kind of combating misinformation, dealing with misleading stories, and you know trying to put things into their appropriate context. And that kind of continued as time went on. It was quite surprising to see the group's influence kind of build. We stayed quite apolitical. We never lobbied policy positions, for example. We weren't particularly retrospective. You know, if only we'd done this differently, we might be in a different position. It was kind of very much, this is where we are, and this is our current understanding of the situation. So I think we managed not to annoy anybody, and we managed not to get drawn too far into some of the kind of factionalism that arose between different groups. And that ended up being helpful in the sense that people could see that we were a pretty objective group and that I suppose we had internal checks and balances. We had a, a fair divergence of views within the group, and that meant that the content that we were putting out, I think, was was well thought through and, and we'd looked at things from different angles. And over time, some members of the group, technically through a different volunteering channel set up by the Institute and Faculty of Actuaries find ourselves more directly involved. So rather than sort of outsiders commenting on what was happening, doing some analysis that was feeding into work that the Department for Health and Social Care were doing with the Office for National Statistics to kind of understand and quantify different elements of the direct and indirect impacts that COVID would do. And, and that advice was going to SAGE and, and obviously ultimately informing government. And have you seen actuaries feeding into sort of key policy decisions like that in the past? Or is, is this the first time that kind of partnership has happened? I think actuaries tend to get involved, but it's maybe not hugely visible to the wider profession outside of the government actuaries department. So GADA are there 
to address these sorts of questions for government, to feed into these sorts of questions. But I think it's the first time that I can think of that, as well as the actuarial support available through those kind of official channels, we've had these as a sort of multidisciplinary team of volunteers, because of course, while we called it the actuaries response group, because we wanted to position the profession as they're available, ready to help. Actually, it was a multidisciplinary collaboration. We had epidemiologists and public health people feeding into our, our work. So I think it was for the better that we had the volunteer input alongside the great work that the government's actuaries department were doing. We're going to turn in a second, I think, talking about what the data says about health today. But I suppose just, just closing on that conversation, is the COVID-19 actuaries response group sort of still active? And what's the plan for it? Is it kind of winding down or have you done your work or is there still more to do there? No, it's a great question, Dan. And whilst the, the direct impacts of COVID are, are thankfully less pronounced and it feels like with each successive wave, you know, we have experienced five waves of Omicron in 2022, but whilst the number of infections is still spiking periodically, we are seeing fewer direct hospitalizations, fewer deaths with each of those. But we're increasingly seeing what felt like a very specific emergency situation directly from COVID translating into perhaps a longer term, more chronic problem with the indirect impacts of the pandemic now placing an increased burden on a healthcare service, which is going to struggle to cope, at least in the immediate and short to medium term. So where the group goes, I think, is to be determined. I think we will probably continue to comment where we see a role, where we see areas that we can add value, but we won't keep the thing going just for its own sake. It was really a, a response to a crisis and many of us have busy day jobs. So you'll watch this space, I think. Sure. Well, yeah, I mean, that's a good point to sort of move on to, I suppose, the core of what you've been talking about on TV and other places recently, which is really, what is the data saying today about health in the UK today, start of 2023? What does the data tell us? Yeah, so the situation, I'm afraid, is not great. Normally, we expect life expectancy to improve, not linearly every single year, but for there to be a, a strong trend of improving life expectancy, which means falling mortality rates. Unfortunately, that's not the situation we're in at the moment. Obviously, the pandemic has caused a very sharp dislocation. We had very, very high mortality rates in 2020 and 2021. Now, nearly all of the extra deaths, the excess deaths that we saw over that period were a direct consequence of COVID. As we moved into 2022, the situation actually gets quite interesting. So if you look at aggregate mortality, so death rates as a whole, there didn't really appear to be a large problem in the first few months of 2022. Um, the death rate overall was actually towards the lower end of what we'd seen historically. Now, that's not that exciting. You do expect death rates to fall, and you would particularly hope that death rates would be lower when you just had a pandemic which had sadly killed many of the old and frail members of society. But as I say, the aggregate was that death rates were quite low. But of course, aggregate death rates are dominated by what's going on in the oldest groups. Most deaths are amongst the older people. If you look more closely at the data, we could see a problem. Right Right from the start of the year amongst younger adults. So death rates were significantly higher than what we've seen in recent years. And once we got into the spring, that problem became more pronounced and more obvious because we saw this increasing problem amongst all the different age groups. So 
We can think about a number of different factors that are, are contributing to this higher mortality. So firstly, we've seen increasing demand on the health system. And that is maybe increasing demand isn't quite the way to phrase it, but certainly an excess of demand over supply of available beds and workers. There's a lot of different things going into that. Partly it's about throughput through the system. So if you can't discharge people into social care, then you can't get people off the wards. You've got a lot of people occupying hospital beds who are strictly medically fit for discharge. That then causes problems getting people onto the wards, which causes things to back up in A&E. And you get this problem all the way through the system. So we've seen that building and that situation has got progressively worse through the year. We've seen increasing levels of staff absenteeism. So obviously the NHS are on the front line whenever there's a new virus. So as we get these constant waves of, of Omicron, as I said, they're becoming less lethal, but they're still still enough to put somebody off work and to lead to higher levels of absenteeism amongst NHS workers. Of course, the mental health burden on top of that, you know, these people have been through three years of extraordinary pressures. And it's perhaps not a surprise that there's higher levels of absenteeism from both physical and mental health. So we've seen those problems kind of building within the system. We also know that, well, we've got pressure from COVID waves sort of continuing to go on. We know that post-COVID infection, there can be an elevated risk of cardiovascular troubles. So that's going to play into the kind of patient demand side. And of course, we have the consequences that arose from the steps that we had to take to control the virus. So we had lockdowns. And whilst those people weren't prohibited from seeing their GPs, but there were, of course, strong messages out there about, you know, stay home unless it's really urgent. And we we saw people stay away from routine health appointments. And one of the things that's been quite striking is research from the British Heart Foundation. So that has shown around half a million fewer new prescriptions for blood pressure medication than would ordinarily have been expected. So you can think of a, when I say a new prescription, I mean a patient being prescribed blood pressure meds for the first time. So think of that as a proxy for a new diagnosis. So you've got a huge number of people who would ordinarily, for one reason or another, have found themselves in front of a clinician who would have diagnosed high blood pressure and they're not being medicated. So that's going to cause pressures on the supply side as well. The research is suggesting thousands of additional strokes and heart attacks just from that. And of course, I'm using blood pressure as an example. We saw similar things for other cardiovascular conditions and cholesterol medication. So cholesterol meds, diabetes meds, a number of these diagnoses missed. So all these things contributing to a chronic problem. And then to go on with this litany of woes, we've had a more urgent acute problem arise at the very back end of the year. So on top of this constant demand that we've been experiencing for most of the year, we had a pretty sharp and early flu wave that hit us. And we've had no flu to speak of for a couple of years. So immunity has been lower. We had another COVID wave coinciding with that. And of course, we had a really cold snap in December. So unfortunately, the year ended badly. We'd already been seeing mortality rates above normal levels for kind of the last nine months of the year, but then they went 
way higher at the back end of the year. So that's the picture. That's the kind of most recent data that we've got available. As we speak today, we've just had the first week of 2023 published and things are a bit messy at this time of year because you're looking at death registrations and bank holidays are getting in the way. But it's very clear looking at that data that death rates are much higher than we'd like them to be and than we'd normally expect at this time of year. And I guess that strikes me as the key, isn't it? That you've got all these different factors and a lot of obviously stories and anecdotes that support all this stuff. And journalists can look at hospital waiting rooms and and the picture looks awful. But the key bit, to me anyway, seems to be the data bit where you can then say, right, the data says it's X percent higher than before. I think the number was, was it 300 to 500 deaths a week from longer any wait times? And that feels like the key piece for the media and for the person at home to really grasp that it's a really big issue on top of obviously the stories which are also very compelling it's putting all that together that gives you the complete picture yeah absolutely i would agree with you dan and i think one of the strengths of the volunteer team the covid-19 naturalist response group and one of the strengths of the health analytics team here at lcp is the ability to take clinical insight and combine that with data to really understand what's going on. I've seen people who are great data analysts get into trouble misinterpreting data which can be messy and incomplete because they were not reconciling that with the sort of bottom-up stories from the ground that would help people understand what was going on. I think it really is important to take the data and to make sure that that matches up with the sense checks that you can get from those kind of anecdotal stories coming from clinicians. I mean, you, you mentioned the 300 to 500 excess deaths. So that was quite an interesting piece of work. A few people did different work that's triangulated on that. So the approach that we took was to essentially look at this published study, which was published in 2021 after peer review, looks at data from kind of 2016 to 2018, and essentially measures 30-day mortality outcomes for people who'd experienced different lengths of delay in A&E. And it controls for all the sorts of things that you would expect it to control for, so different demographic mixes and comorbidities and so on of, of the patients going in there. But essentially, you know, it applies these controls and looks at how much additional harm is arising, how many more deaths essentially from these long delays. And that research shows that compared to the sort of the optimal waiting time of kind of zero to four hours, once you push that up to sort of six to eight hours for every 82 people waiting that amount of time, you're looking at an extra death. And and once you go eight to 12 hours for every 72 people, you're looking at an extra death. So quite easy then to combine those sorts of ratios with the data available and draw some conclusions for the level of additional harm that's arising. And important to understand, these aren't deaths that are happening in the A&E department. They're not even necessarily deaths that are happening in the hospital. As we talked about, A&E demand is associated with demand pressures all the way through the hospital system. So it's just saying we can see that when waiting times are bad, we know that there will be poorer mortality outcomes. And an interesting corollary to that work is actually what we're doing is we're applying these eight to 12 hour delays, the sort of harm factors that arise from that to people waiting 12 hours or more. We just don't have data in that study on the extra harm that arises for 12 plus hour delays because I just don't think there was enough people waiting that long in 2016 to 18 to have done a statistically significant investigation. It is clear, though, from that work that the longer the delay, the more harm. So I would say we're probably underestimating the harm, if anything, by taking this kind of 8 to 12 hour delay and applying it to people waiting still longer. 
I mean, Stuart, this is all sounding pretty depressing. It's it's great that we have this information and that, you know, we're able to understand the data and identify all these harms. But are there actually solutions to all of these problems? So, look, I talked earlier about experts getting outside of their field of expertise, and I'm not a policy expert. I've been trying to add value through this by doing data analysis to some extent as far as I can staying within my lane. I did talk about the pressures building up through the system. And, you know, it's clear to me from conversations that I have with people who either part-time or full-time are still kind of on the front line, that if you are able to clear some of the bed blocking signs, a terribly unfair way to put it. But if if you're able to discharge some of those patients who are, are fit to leave hospital, then you can unblock the system and use the existing capacity to its best effect. That would feel to me to be one of the short-term options available. But some of these problems, I think, are going to take a long time to fix. You can't just magic up a trained NHS workforce. It's interesting that you say about kind of focusing on your expertise and, and not trying to get too far out of it. It must be very tempting. I mean, I, I know I would find it tempting if I was in that situation to jump into solutions. And I guess it sounds like you've made the judgment that your work is retains more credibility if you don't try and do that, because otherwise everyone just thinks, oh, yeah, here comes Stuart again with his solutions to everything that he's trying to push. And so therefore, we need to read it, all his work with that in mind. Is that sort of the view behind it? Yeah, I think that's right. And I don't mean to be critical of those individuals and groups who have decided that they're going to take a a more proactive position to lobby their preferred policy responses and so on. But I just feel that there are others better equipped to make those sorts of choices. And these these are never easy choices. We've got a lot of great people working across our health system. And if there were easy solutions, I'm sure they'd have come up with them. But I feel like the best contribution that I can make is helping really shine a light on data, particularly helping where people are misunderstanding, misinterpreting data and presenting that balanced picture of what the data shows and allowing people to make decisions off the back of that. Anything that's particularly surprised you about the data in the last year or so? Well, there's been plenty of stories that have come to mind. And there's been huge amounts of misunderstandings, misinterpretations, and it it has created quite an opportunity for actuaries to add value. So, you know, some of this stuff will be very obvious. The base rate fallacy is a clear example. You know, we've had people out there saying, oh, look, more than half the people in hospitals are vaccinated. Well, of course they are, because 95% of people or more in the country are vaccinated. If half the people in hospital are coming from the 5% that aren't vaccinated and half are coming from the 95 that are, a newer person should be able to see what that kind of balance of risk is showing. But it's, it's amazing how many people need help to understand those things. There was a great, so you may be aware of Simpson's paradox, where you see patterns in aggregated data, which look different from the patterns you see in disaggregated data. So I, I had a lot of, again, fun doesn't seem quite appropriate with such a, a difficult topic. But we did find an example a year or so ago where it seemed to be that vaccinated individuals were experiencing higher rates of mortality than unvaccinated individuals. And this was causing a a big fuss on social media. So I took a really close look at this. My first impression, having spent 18 months in the trenches of social media dealing with misinformation, was that somebody had probably just made up the data because that happens. Actually, when I looked at it, it wasn't invented data. It was real. It was coming from the ONS. But interestingly, it was coming from an ONS report that 
talked about the benefits of vaccination. So I, I couldn't really think immediately what was going on. So I, I drilled a little deeper. And actually, if you looked at the, the period in question, essentially what the ONS had done was they were looking at mortality rates for people aged 18 to 59, which is a really, really broad age group. And they were comparing vaccinated to unvaccinated, but at a time when vaccines had only been rolled out to the older members of that population. So essentially what they were doing was comparing all-cause mortality between a load of older people who'd mostly been vaccinated with a load of very young people who'd mostly not been vaccinated and reaching incorrect conclusions. It was very, very obvious that once you age controlled, the vaccinated people were having much lower mortality rates. But with that really aggregated data, that story was being lost. So ONS, they did get a bit of a rap on the knuckles from the statistics regulator for that one, and they enhanced, improved their analysis going forwards. But those sorts of things are very quickly seized on by people either who've got legitimate concerns or who you know are seeking to mislead. And it's felt like a good opportunity to add value to just dive in and do those kind of quick statistical investigations and, and try and help people understand what the data is showing and why. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? If you frame your data a certain way or use a misleading sample, you can come up with a really misleading result. And perhaps if people did have a bit more in the way of numeracy skills, it would help them to identify that. I mean, that's something that we're seeing in the news quite a lot at the moment with the prime minister proposing that the amount of maths and numeracy training that people receive is extended until they're 18. I'm curious about what your thoughts are on this idea. Well, the PM also pushed back on my 300 to 500 deaths number, which he said people should stop bandying around. But hopefully I've done enough now to show our, our workings and let NHS England and others draw their own conclusions about that one. On this proposal for maths to 18, yeah, I think perhaps he's been unfairly interpreted. From what I've read, this isn't a proposal to force everybody to do advanced calculus and, and the joys of differentiation. I think this is about increasing and improving the population's level of numeracy. And that feels to me to be a worthy objective. As long as it's implemented in such a way that doesn't put people off continuing education altogether. If we can find a way that allows us to increase the level of numeracy in our population, personally, I believe that to be a good thing because at the moment, the situation's not great. And I mean that both in absolute terms and relative to kind of international comparisons. It feels like, you know, the level of numeracy is way below what it could be and, and perhaps should be. Yeah, I can certainly agree with that. Although, I mean, to be fair, the Simpsons paradox thing is really tricky, isn't it? I think even that can catch anyone now, I think, to be honest with you. Like, it is very, very nuanced, that one. And even, even someone who's very numerate can get caught out on that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you, you still need professionals. And that's a great example, Dan, of, of something where you really do need to know your statistics to dive in. But, you know, at the moment, I feel like the problems we're solving are the problems we need to solve are significantly more straightforward, you know, helping people to understand just compound interest, time value of money, and, you know, relatively simple concepts would be a big step forward. Just quickly then, as we're rounding off maybe on the health data point, it sounds like one of the good things about working in the area that you are is there's quite a lot of data available on the health side, things like wait times and A&E is sort of data that gets published, obviously deaths get published with quite a lot of detail behind them. Is it true that there's a lot of data out there? Is it getting better or worse? And what sort of data is missing that you'd like to see in all of that to do really good work? 
Yes, there there is good data out there. To be clear, the work we do is with aggregated data. You know, people shouldn't feel that there's health analytics companies or people advising insurance companies and pension funds that are looking at individual data. The work is all happening with high-level aggregate data. Yes, there could always be better data available. So at the moment, to give you an example that's live, we're trying to properly understand and explain this excess mortality that we've been experiencing through 2022. Now, I talked to you about some of the acute problems towards the end of the year, but I'm talking more about the chronic problem that we've seen, particularly amongst younger adults over this period. There's good data available that allows us to understand the age and the sex and where people are dying and also what of. But these are all kind of one-way splits. So we can see there's more people dying at home. We can see there's more people dying of cardiovascular. We can see there's more younger adults dying. But it'd be great to have multi-way splits. So what they're dying of, what age group, and that kind of level of granularity. So Stuart, you definitely convinced me that we need actuaries in our society and that you're doing great work with all this data. But I guess more specifically, how do you actually use this data when you work with clients? So for example, insurers, pension schemes, how do you use this data day to day? Yes. Yeah, so I think that the days of advice on, on mortality to pension schemes, insurance companies, and others that need to set mortality assumptions, the days of just being able to look at the last few years of experience to get an understanding of base mortality, and then to look at a historic trend to project where things might go in the future are behind us, at least for a few years, but I, I think probably indefinitely, because I think once you've invested in the sorts of techniques that you need to use to make sense of the situation we're in now, I don't see why you would go backwards. So it feels to me that to make sense of what mortality is going to be like for a particular pension scheme or a particular portfolio of insurance customers, then it's very important to understand who those people are and how they're going to be affected by the various different things which are kind of pushing on mortality at the moment, some of those different factors that we talked about earlier. So that's where I think the clinical insight becomes all the more important, understanding who people are, profiling them, how they're going to be affected by these different drivers. Really, really important. And that's going to come through, I think, in the advice that we give clients. Definitely. So it's been really great to hear from you today. Lots and lots of useful insights. What do you think is the key thing you'd want listeners to take away from this? Thanks, last year. So my conclusion would be that actuaries have really been able to add value in understanding some of the health problems that we've experienced over the last few years. That skill set, which really hasn't required the full depth and breadth of the actuarial syllabus by any stretch, much of what we've been doing has been relatively simple data analysis and stats as a real opportunity to add value. So more numeracy, more analysis can all be really important in understanding data sets and drawing conclusions from these. Yeah, I'm here for the actuaries. And most underappreciated thing and all that, Stuart? I think the most underappreciated thing is that sometimes numbers need a little bit more coaxing to tell their true story. What you see on the surface can really benefit from insight. And any recommendations for good books or podcasts that our listeners can check out? Well, perhaps you would expect me to say this, but more or less, I think is a phenomenal podcast for really getting under the skin of different numbers, even on the weeks I'm not on it. And books, I've had far less opportunity to read over the last few years beyond pandemic and mortality-related literature, but I'm still a big fan 
of Andrew Scott's book, The 100 Year Life. I think understanding how society is is likely to evolve as we age. We talked briefly earlier about demographics. It's going to be one of the big trends of the decades ahead. I'm a fan of that as well. I've read that, actually. That's good. Yeah, I read that. It's a couple of years old now, isn't it? But yeah, really enjoyed that one. Great. Okay, we'll put links to both of those in the show notes. Stuart, it's been a great conversation today. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Great to talk to you both. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.